1: This is a CBC Podcast.
2: Hi, I'm Saroja Coelho, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. There are some bands that really hold together by the thinnest of threads. Like, it feels as if someone could strike a match at the wrong time and the whole thing might just blow up. If we're honest, Oasis was a little bit like that. But then there are other bands that harness this really intense sense of purpose. You get the feeling that no matter what happens, the band is just going to stick to their vision and not care about what anyone else is saying or doing. A metric is really like that. They have this inner strength that has seen the band tour the world. They've racked up hundreds of millions of streams. They've won awards and put out nine studio albums. The latest is called Formentera 2 and it's really significant for the band right now. We're going to get into some of that in just a moment but first, have a listen to the music.
3: Seems like the time it will be-
2: So that's a glittering gem, just the ones from Metric off their new album, Formentera 2. All the trademarks of a Metric album are there. That's driving, rhythm section, shiny synths. You've got the clarity of voice that comes from the one and only Emily Haynes. And this album is the second part of a recording project that's really unlike anything else the band has done before. We're going to get into why this is such a special moment in just a moment. But first, there's another remarkable thing that comes up here, which is that it is 20 years since Metric first burst onto the scene with their debut album. This was a skyrocket sonic moment. Uh, Who didn't lose their head to this on a dance floor at some point? When Dead Disco came out, things were starting to blow up for this band in Montreal, in Toronto. Metric at that moment was really in that wonderful orbit with Broken Social Scene and stars. And some of those relationships went way, way back to when all these folks were in high school. And yet... Through it all, Metric never sounded like anyone else, and they still don't. Emily Haynes and Jimmy Shaw from Metric hung out in the studio with Tom Power to talk about those amazing two decades of music. Hi. 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 How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm I'm just
2: processing that.
1: I know. That was kind of like, this whole 20-year thing has kind of caught me off guard a little bit. What do you you mean? Well, it's just, you know, part of what got us to 20 years, I think, in the first place is that we didn't keep stopping and looking back, you know, Mm -hmm. and... Uh, I think then you kind of just one day you wake up and there's a bunch of emails that are like, hey, we're going to celebrate your last 20 years. And you're like, oh, whoa. I, first of all, I didn't know it was 20 years. And second of all, I'm not sure I n- needed on that day to start drawing a connection between everything I've ever done and how it resulted in me sitting in this chair right now. You know, It's kind of like being at your own funeral not at your own funeral but like the thing where like everyone talks about you and you know it's like your oh, own it
4: might be more like a roast
1: <laughs> yeah maybe your own <laughs> roast
4: <laughs> yeah um, it's a trip it's been a trip it's been really cool um the combination of going back to old world and doing i think the fact what made it more intense actually is that it's not like it happened in a vacuum of like we were inactive and was sort of like hey remember 20 years ago yeah instead it was old world right up against um, Formaterra 2 and the eerie sensation that for all the things that have happened in our lives personally and creatively and everything it was like oh we're exactly the same
0: I'm I'm excited to get a chance to um, talk a little bit about the early days of the band but I think I even want to go back a little bit further and talk about the early days of of each of you and Emily I'll I'll start with you Um, talk to me a little bit about like how your creativity how you you found your, your creativity in yourself my understanding is um, is that it's, it's your family, right? It's your it's your folks.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I've, you know, the culture and mythology of every family is unique. Mm-hmm. Um, mine, it was interesting because there are no other musicians in the family, but there's a deep appreciation of music. And, you know, it doesn't take me long to speak of my father, um, who was a poet. Uh, he was also a French teacher, much beloved, and um, showed a lot of people uh, from Canada, Paris for the first time, which I think is a very cool accomplishment.
0: Like took people on trips.
4: Yeah, he did. Like he had to battle the hockey mafia to be like seriously, guys, <laughs> we could do something else too. And he like took uh, took kids to France. And um, he's
0: one of those teachers. Yeah,
4: he's, he and he is actually. Yeah, he was. So that was M- my the mom was one yeah. of those oh, teachers. Really? She
0: was like an English teacher who helped people out when they were about to drop out and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, like John's. the
4: deeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the it, deeper level. They get
0: stopped in the mall a little bit more often than exactly, you're normal. Okay, exactly. Yeah. But also a, a poet, also mm-hmm. a jazz critic, right? No, not okay. a critic.
4: He was a poet, and he wrote—his most significant and well-known work was is still quite obscure, but it was with um, Carla Blay, who's a composer who, in fact, just passed away this month mm. um, at the age of 87. She's just kind of globally recognized as a really—in uh, her obituary, they called her a provocateur, which I thought was— Cool, Mm. Um, but amazing composer. So he never uh, wrote music, but he was very involved, and I was always listening to this very strange out there music that I thought was normal.
0: the The urge is not always immediate for someone who's the child of a of an artist to want to follow the arts themselves. In fact, sometimes they can be dissuaded the other way. so just personally, where did that drive come from in you?
4: Well, I mean, if it comes to rebellion, it's you know to write a pop song was about you know the oh. most radical thing i could do if i if I had like taken up you know circular breathing on the saxophone, it would have been really like following the family trajectory but <laughs> Instead, I scandalized everyone by writing pop music with Jimmy Shaw.
3: And,
0: And you started out, my understanding is in classical music.
1: Yeah, I was a very good trumpet player when I was a kid, and I got into all sorts of schools in the U.S. and I went to Curtis when I was young and Juilliard, and um, but by the time I got to Juilliard, it was I, I kind of knew that it wasn't the right path for me.
0: You mean you were pretty good to be getting into those schools? Now. I was,
1: I was really good, I, I, but I, it there was something about it that was like came extremely naturally to me. But at the same time, I didn't really understand what I was doing. Like it, 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 I didn't really practice that much, and and I wasn't really like obsessed with it the way that a lot of other classical music kids were.
0: You were just good at it.
1: I was just good at it, and I kind of did it in high school for more like social reasons than anything else, Uh, because all all my friends were in the orchestra and everyone kind of played together, and they were like trips for for the musicians and were it was it was kind of more of a social thing n- not dissimilar to the way that rock and roll is you know and once i got to school and it was like people were really really taking it seriously and you know everyone's practicing eight hours a day and they were probably the most antisocial people i'd i've ever been around uh it it very quickly became not the calling for me
0: how did how did this happen the two uh
1: mus- musically <laughs> Mu- uh, <laughs> i think the way that it happened like in, ter- in terms of like a physical space and musically is kind of the same thing we were we met joe at, phillips man. yeah we met through a bass player named joe phillips and and he he would call me and say i know i know this girl named emily haynes and she's a really talented singer songwriter and you guys got to meet i don't know why he said you guys got to meet but he kept saying you guys got to meet and uh we ended up meeting at the horseshoe and there was uh, I mean, this is, it, yeah, it's,
4: it's like a maple syrup scented <laughs>
0: Canadian success story. Lester B. Pearson was there. Totally. <laughs> we were drinking 50. Probably
1: drinking oh, 50. the things. Yeah.
4: It's such a cool thing. There like, was
1: a terrible band playing and, and Joe came up to me and he was like, hey, that girl Emily I was telling you about, she's, she's over there. Why don't you go talk to her? So I walked, walked over and the first thing I said was, this band's terrible. And she was like, yeah, it is. And for some reason I think we both just went, okay, well, let's do something about it.
0: Did did you know when you started playing music together, either what you wanted to sound like or what you didn't want to sound like?
4: We didn't want to sound like that band. <laughs> I mean there's always been a pretty deep sense and fear of like regionalism, which isn't any dig on like any particular city. I think you can fall into it wherever you are. But I remember the feeling from that first meeting and connection that it was like, let's do something real. Let's do something big. And I'm sure it's hard for musicians now to grasp how hard distribution was then. That was the biggest obstacle when it comes to like trying to do something interesting is it was really there was not a lot of oxygen um, in the Canadian scene as we saw it because it was really rigid with the like um, satellite offices of these major labels that were just kind of a joke. Mm. Um, the like acid wash outskirts of like, you know, these big companies that didn't really seem to respect Canadian music. Acid and- yeah.
1: wash outskirts? You just said that. <laughs> yeah. I, mean- I, rem- I had those, they had their CDs. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and they weren't that bad. <laughs> it's, it's, that's not a soft skeleton tune. I don't know why. Yeah, <laughs>
4: So, we not only wanted to change up what was happening with how you could release your music, how you could reach people, but also Jimmy had all these aspirations of producing and making music in our own way with our own sound that we didn't know what it was, you know, for sure influenced by the music coming out of the UK at the time. Like those Portishead records, you know, it was like, what is that? The way that they were creating, it just sounded like it was expressing more than what you would in a conventional, like, you know, officially mandated, recorded, well properly recorded facility. It was like the beginning of home recording. So all those things converged. And I think like that's hilariously we managed to just pursue that. Pretty much nonstop for the
0: past twenty years. It sounds exciting.
4: It's been I've, I've had a pretty good time. I can't lie.
0: But the creation of that sound, and and I and I'm not going to harp on this, but I, I did say this intentionally in the introduction, not just as a joke. The 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 there's a lot of bands that wanted to sound like Metric after Metric came out. I mean, I know I've seen a lot of bands that wanted to sound like Metric that when Metric came out. What sounds exciting to me was sort of. A rare thing to be able to do, especially in Canadian music, is to kind of define a style for yourselves Mm -hmm. and to kind of figure out what you want it to sound like. That does sound sound very exciting.
4: And it was self-generating because, you know, we also had absolutely no money. So, you know, it's like let's scrounge to get together some sort of rudimentary gear at the same time as, you know, Jimmy's developing his abilities. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, cut to now where we have, like, to me, not the audiophile, but, you know, the beneficiary of that skill – like a state of the art recording studio. Yeah. Um it's the which is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, state of the art. I love that. Someone came into the studio once and they were like, "Can you make like CD quality music?" In there? <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, I'm going to say that." We have a plugin for that. <laughs> yeah.
0: You w- when you were when you were in New York in like the late '90s, early 2000s, before the first record came out. Mm-hmm. To me, as someone who is um, kind of from the outside looking in, um, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but like from the outside looking in reading music magazines about that time uh, in New York and sort of Williamsburg, um, and also younger at the time, so like looking upwards and seeing what was happening. Mm-hmm. The, the, the scene that you seemed to be a part of there or the scene that you were making art within there was a really exciting one. What
1: did it feel like actually on the ground floor of it? <laughs> Nothing <laughs> like it reads now. Yeah. Um, it never does. No. I mean, I, I I feel like I would be surprised if, at least for us specifically, if there could be a bigger chasm between how it felt to us and how it reads now, anywhere in the world. I mean, really, at the time for us, it was like we were just trying to survive. And it really, really felt like we were just trying to survive. I think that some of the other people in that scene, you know... It may have been a year apart from like where we were living in Williamsburg with the AAS and, and members of TV on the radio and liars and stars and blah blah blah. you know meanwhile, just across the bridge, you know, the strokes were like getting it together in a little rehearsal studio in a basement somewhere. I don't think our realities were similar. Like- specifically we were we were in extreme close proximity to a lot of the stuff that happened but we weren't culturally that connected to it you know after 911 we left new york within a month or two and we went out to la and that's really where the band actually gelled and actually clicked and where we found Mike Andrews and where we found Andy Factor and, and ever loving records and started doing residencies at the silver Lake lounge. And that's really where it happened for us. The, the, the other stuff was like, it would almost, to be totally honest, was, was, was frustrating because the people that, that were around us and sort of became that whole thing, you know, meet me in the washroom as we we call it. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, is like, uh, the
4: untold Canadian the version. version. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Me in the washroom. Yeah. I just got it. <laughs>
3: right. I said
4: I did Lizzie's podcast, and I said that to her on her podcast. So I was like, "Dude, I have this idea." <laughs> uh,
1: I think they they felt like a little like a little community in a, in a in a different way, in an American way, in a northeastern kind of way. Yeah. Um. And 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 I don't think there was a there wasn't a ton of like cross vibes.
4: But it's funny too with the like how London factored into that because we got kind of like chosen. There were these managers that were like, "You're going to be a huge star. Like, drop everything, quit your job, we're flying you to England." It really
0: does sound like that. This part of the story, it really does sound like it someone was, was trying it to was, like it the, it was the old story of like, "We're going to make you big stars." It, it, honey, it really know?
4: was, yeah. and yeah. in fact, it's just
1: the shag that was missing. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> yeah, right. right
4: yeah my favorite line was like the buzz is too big you can't even play a show the buzz is so big from this like these <laughs> CDRs that we've been circulating of our these you know it's all coming back to these CDRs well
0: known <laughs> a well known problem <laughs> the buzz is too big yeah, you can't exactly. play a show Don't, how many times have you heard
4: that right all that? the time Yeah, yeah. Why try? I just remember everyone saying goodbye to us is this a, Is this like yes
1: I know I remember standing
4: well. and they're all like they were clapping they're clapping because we left
1: for England and, and everyone and...
4: was like congrats like you made it you made it you're going and it's
1: like when well, you made it meaning like someone bought you an airline ticket somewhere, <laughs> yeah without exactly. a return Economy class the, yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and the, and the yeah. return yeah. was because they didn't have enough money for the return, yeah.
4: <laughs> but you know, when we came back, which was a pretty intense, you know crestfallen moment, like it didn't result in like the huge record deal, which again in retrospect is such a blessing, but yeah. you know, we did this big publishing deal, we did all these things, but it was like we we recognized that we had to turn around and come back yeah. and what we came back to was like in my mind was right. was it had already was, started and we came back to this thing we had missed like a year of which was this sound that was happening and like the white stripes record and like the garage rock thing but to me that was the best you know again in retrospect the best thing ever because it was just a context for us to feel confident enough to do what we what was the right thing to do which was start a
0: band well, let's play a little bit of the, of the, of the record. Combat, baby. Combat, baby. It's guitarier than I remember it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's Metric and Combat Baby, including my pop-up video-like um, commentary during it uh, from their first album, Old World Underground, Where Are You Now? So Emily, just, just to, to follow up on what you were saying there, it must have been so gratifying that this record did well then. Like you know what I mean, I know we're not we're not built for we're not built for yeah, it worked out. Mm-hmm. But after everything you just told me, you finally come back, you're making music with friends, you're around people who are making music with friends, you're able to escape this like awful system that so many people have fallen victim to. And then the record does well. Like that record does well. That must be at least exciting or gratifying.
1: Yeah, no, it it really was. There it, there was moments. It was like when we did the Mod Club shows on on Old World in like two thousand three or something, four maybe February two thousand four, and we put up one and it sold, and we put up another and it sold, and we put up. We ended up doing four shows, and that was the first moment that was like, okay, this is this is going to go. Yeah, it doesn't mean you feel okay. It doesn't mean you have more than five bucks. Yeah, it doesn't mean you have somewhere to sleep. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything yeah. other than the room's full and there's a reason to keep going and i think that for the for us that was the first time it was like there's a real reason to keep going like this is working you have absolutely nothing to show for it there's but a reason working. to keep
0: going yeah that's what it is it's yeah. not that you got something out of it no. but yeah. you've been given a new reason exactly. to exactly that's a
4: good yeah. distinction it's like a lifeline
1: mm. that must be a powerful feeling yeah, I somewhat. sort of have it right now. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure <laughs> we've hasn't ever really felt changed. different like <laughs> since then. To be honest with you. Yeah,
0: let me let me play another clip. 2009 that's metric and, and help i'm alive. Very big song for your band. Jimmy, how did how did that song change things for you guys or did it?
1: I know who to put this question to now. Well, it it's it was a it's it was a weird one because we didn't really know how to continue after mm-hmm. live it out. Like we there, there were there were problems and we had taken some time up apart and gotten past the like you know five years on the road and and started addressing all of our own individual stuff and finding out where to live and and you know emily made a solo record and there was all this stuff happening and we were trying to put it back together so we could really keep going and um yeah that song kind of changed everything it wasn't intentional at all like we just had a we had a song Emily had had, had sent me the song and we were working on it and it was it was slower and then I came into the studio one day and I was like I think I got I think I got it it's got to be like way faster and I had the whole idea of how to do it and we did it and um, it was like all these like problems converged. To make us release this song before we were supposed to, and choose it as a single when we didn't think it was a single, it was like twenty-five things went wrong and resulted in the most right thing possible, and we got lucky. And
4: it was not considered a, a valuable asset on the record; it was barely on the record. Yeah.
1: Interesting, yeah, because yeah. it became the biggest song. Yeah, and and we had to put something out before, well before the record. It was like seven months before the record, and. Uh, because we'd agreed to do this tour, so we put it out and 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 then it just it just took off. Like someone, the station in Seattle started playing it.
4: Someone in Australia. Somewhere, uh, yeah, think, Triple yeah. J in Australia started mm-hmm.
1: playing it, and it just it just took on a whole life. And and for us, thank God, because you know we had gone independent at that point. We were putting out fantasies on our own for yeah. the first time. Um, we had a lot of we had rolled the dice big time yeah and if the dice had come up wrong I, we wouldn't have made it so that song kind of made us make it.
3: I tremble.
2: change the way that you're listening to that song knowing that this is the song that changed everything for the band that's Metric with their song Help I'm Alive coming up you're going to hear more of Tom's conversation with the band they've been talking a lot about how failure moments are really backbone building moments. The greatness came from some of their hardest moments of pushing through. Now, Emily and Jimmy are going to tell you what happens when a city band makes a record in the countryside, and they're going to remember their friend and collaborator, Lou Reed. I'm Saroja, I'm sitting in for Tom. More after this. I I'm Candace Lim. And I'm Rachel Hampton. We are the hosts of ICYMI, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And we want to help you make sense of the need-to-know internet stories of the week. Consider us your internet historians of past, present, and future. Of the good, the bad, and the truly unhinged. From nuanced takes on stories we're all closely following... To the ones you wished you heard about. In case you missed it, that's ICYMI, the podcast that's extremely online, so you don't have to be. Follow and listen now.
3: I never wanted.
2: What? This is an iconic moment in Canadian music history. You have the rumble of Lou Reed alongside Metric, their song "Wonderlust." You can just hear how Emily Haynes, her voice shimmers right alongside. They're kind of in this call and response with each other. It's just an amazing moment. I'm Saroja Coelho, sitting in for Tom Power. You are listening to Q and you are in the middle of his conversation with Metric. We've been looking back at the band's origin story. Those really hungry early years in New York City all the way to the moment where they started making it on their own in Toronto. When Tom played this song for Emily Haynes and Jimmy Shaw in studio, Jimmy said that he thought no one represented the conflict between counterculture and pop music better than Lou Reed and his band The Velvet Underground. And he thought that mirrored Metric's own journey between those two worlds. Tom wanted to know if Emily in particular felt that she'd learned anything from Lou Reed. Here's what she said.
4: All I know of like what I got from Lou was just it was like I was looked at and heard in a way that was like for whatever reason he didn't see the superficial trappings of like you know technically it's like I'm this chick like playing the synthesizers and like jumping around or whatever it's, it's, everything's sparkly whatever you know whatever you yeah. want to you want to see you can see but for some reason with Lou he he appreciated the writing and he seemed to understand that I really was. Uh, unvarnished and not my main purpose is to just try to find something authentic so I I don't know that he uh, that there's anything to learn from him as a sort of role model um, other than I felt really like it gave me sort of proof that I was on the right track of the way I've approached my life and my purpose of like as a writer is that you're just trying to unadorn and just actually say something, not because you're just trying to say something, but because you have something to say. You lived an experience, you learned something, or you have a reason to write a song, you know? And somehow that has connected with Jimmy's ability to be like, we need to put this in a way that this can be heard and made accessible. And that's where the sort of pop element comes in and I think that's the thing with the Velvets is like ultimately that music is just really enjoyable Lou also made records that were really challenging for people so you know um, I just I sometimes just get a little queasy with the like you know grasping how this really is how history works that everyone looks back and they just can't put a big enough crown on people who at the time like couldn't earn a living and didn't you know it's it's unfortunate that so much good stuff I wonder what will you know, we'll be honoring years later. Um, and then suddenly everyone's so cool and loves this this artist that was getting completely, you yeah. know, buried. But.
0: And I think life is more meaningful when they're real people. When the people who make the work that we are, admire are real people and they're humans and mm-hmm. they have to buy groceries, I find that much more exciting. Although,
4: to me. yeah, getting an email from Lou is very weird. Well, that's what I'm talking I about. I didn't want him to have an email address. That's kind it of really, what I'm. It really messed me up. That's I was kind like, of what I'm
0: going at. Is that you got to spend a little bit of time with like the not Lou Reed, but a guy from New York who was that tall and wore, yeah. wore clothes. Lou Reed you know? 2000 at yeah. hotmail.com. <laughs> no, kind of like... to, yeah, exactly, exactly. I can only imagine. There, there must be. You must. I, I understand that. You know, you, you didn't see him as sort of like this vaunted figure playing a uh, scepter on you, you were like, oh, well, this is kind of at least some validation that the guy who does some stuff kind of like what I'm doing is, is seeing the things that I'm doing.
4: Yeah. And then, you know, with the the moment that you do get that sense of like, okay, I am in the presence of something uh, of a real substance that I've never encountered is when we did actually perform together, Yeah, you know, which we did several times, but the metric show at... Radio City
0: I saw the video that was a real did you isn't that
4: maybe you can see it there was a really heavy thing where I was like his eyes I swear to God we were singing Pale Blue Eyes and it was like his eyes were changing color and he was shape shifting it was really heavy and then when I talked about it Afterwards, he was like, "Emily, there's some things we just don't discuss." (laughs) I
3: was
0: like, (laughs) Uh, "All right, I want to play a song from the new record, and I want to talk about sort of the where and why of it." Take a listen to this. a um, Metric with Who Would You Be For Me from their latest album, Formentera 2? I love that song, by the way. I really I do love it. Can, can you can. tell me a little bit about it?
4: Um, I wrote that song in 2019. I was, uh, surprising no one, adrift. But, uh, you know, ultimately, um, uh, what I, I guess I arrived at, which I didn't even really realize myself until we released it, which is kind of what happens. Yeah. A lot, right? You yeah. kind of hear it for the first time, too. Yeah, and
0: people start. And people like me start asking questions about yeah, it, too. Yeah, yeah, and it, just know, the
4: title yeah. sort of – I couldn't decide on a title for a long time. And yeah. then grasping that who would you be for me is actually the point of the whole thing, which is here I am trying to, like, be like, is it New York? Like, what does New York need from me? What does L.A. need from me? What does this relationship need from me? Like, what can I do for everybody, you know, and constantly in this mode of, like – conforming and adapting and just trying to fit in the world and just flipping it finally at great late in the day and at great expense finally sort of getting the memo internally that you could also approach your life where you consider what what would work for you Mm. you could be the girl for me you know (laughs) who would you be for me I could be the girl for you you know and even like with the city you know it's like Okay, New York will take you. All right. Well, do you want New York?
0: Mm, you know. What do you want? What
4: it, yeah, which, I mean, I'm sure your listeners are like, dude, that's really basic. <laughs> but uh, I'm late. I'm late to the memo. And it's kind of a transformative thing. It can apply to your work and your relationships and pretty much everything if you can just flip it and consider it. And to all of you who are like, you've lived your whole life that way, congrats.
0: Well, just to stay on that, just to stay on that for a second musically and production-wise, I can see that as well. I mean, Metric to me, and again, I'm from a rural E place. To people from rural Newfoundland, by the way, I'm from Toronto. But for mm-hmm. people from the rest of Canada, I'm from rural Canada. Mm-hmm. And um, I see Metric as a very urban band, a very city band. I mean, what have we been talking about? We've been talking about New York and L.A. and mm-hmm. London and Toronto. And, Jimmy, I know, like, this record was made out in a small-town kind of Feels more like music from Big Bang style, you yeah, know, like totally. burn in the middle of the, yeah, the middle of the absolutely. woods. Did that bring
1: something different to this recording, or is it just a, is it just a room? It's it's really hard to separate the, the 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 place from the time on this one. You know, it was like it wasn't just the countryside; it was the countryside during a global pandemic. So, right, uh, these two things were, are are not um, they're not disconnected, and and you know, it's like. When, energetically, when there's a brick wall, it's like the energy, the energy goes towards the brick wall and then it bounces back. And when you were in the country, the, the energy went out into the trees and it just didn't come back. So it kind of like, you don't reflect upon what just happened. You just kind of end up being like a never ending well of that energy. And it just kind of keeps flowing out and it never has to come back to you. And you don't have to think about what you did five minutes ago because there's just no reflection. And that's beautiful. And, and, and in terms of the time, it was the same thing. There was no end to what we were doing. And as it went on, the end got further and further and further away. So it was like we were making music in a space that had no walls and no confinements in a time that also had no confinements. And so the result was we exercised all the muscles of imagination way more than we'd ever done in the past because there was all the room in the world to do it. And uh, there was nothing coming back at us. There was no, there was no, like you walk out of the studio and you're working on a song and, uh, and a cab goes by with like the new Beyonce single. And it's just like, re- and your, your whole thing, you're thrown doubting off. yourself. Yeah. All and of a sudden you're like, well, yeah. damn it. Beyonce's bass is like out of control. Yeah, Where's our bass? Yeah. Base? Yeah. You know? yeah. And, or like, you just don't have any of that reflective quality around you. So, you just end up kind of just living completely in your imagination. And I just felt like I had all the space, support, time, whatever it was to just delve deep and come up with anything. And if it wasn't good, try again tomorrow. And if that wasn't good, try again the next day.
0: I I, I hope it's really clear how much I love this record. Um, Thanks Thanks. for doing this. The the first thing we wrote down, Matt and I wrote down, we were getting this interview ready today, and I didn't say it to you, but... Um, you don't seem like the kind of band That looks back Either sonically or narratively So I do appreciate you doing that with me today I do really of course. appreciate it Your instinct was right As yeah. Jimmy
4: said it's, it's been really great to talk with you Because you can imagine Doing this with your own life Like yeah. being like Hey, so what have you been up to for 20 years? It's yeah.
3: like
4: We feel really lucky that uh, you care So thanks for having yeah. us on to chat about it Nothing has come between us Nothing is real Nothing is real, nothing can hurt us,
3: nothing is full of suspense, nothing reveals,
2: nothing is worth it, nothing is come. That's Nothing Is Perfect by Metric. And before that, you heard Tom's conversation with Emily Haynes and Jimmy Shaw from The Band. Their new album, Formentera 2, is out now. Well, that is it for today's podcast. I'm Sorote Coelho. I've been sitting in for Tom Power. If you head over to our feed, you can check out the other conversation that we dropped today with the artist David. You are not going to believe this story. He is a gamer turned hottest musician of the moment. It is such a wonderful conversation. His music is full of a ton of emotion. Just wait for that one as he wears his heart on his sleeve.